Well, we've been in a series about how to love your neighbor in a divided world. And we began that series in an unusual spot where uh, the Hebrew people were taken into slavery and exile. And God tells them not to be resentful, but to work for the betterment of the cities that they were taken into. And last week we looked at Paul who talked about, yes, we are free in Christ, but use your freedom not for self-indulgence, but to support one another. Because if you don't love one another, you will devour one another. And we've, we've felt what it's like to feel devoured as a, as a community, as people. And so this week, we are getting to the kind of essential text when you think about loving your neighbor, that you can't help but think about uh, Jesus' parable, the Good Samaritan. And so we will revisit this question of who is my neighbor? I want to talk about why this text can be so easy and yet so difficult, though. There's something that happens in our brain. If, if all of us just got to be in a normal state, in our rooms, having to think through, do I love someone, do I treat them well or not, we would all, of course, just come to the rational thought of, yes, I should be good to somebody. Because the thinking part of our brain wants to be that. There's another part of our brain that's a little bit more primal, that is always wondering, are you a friend or a foe? Am I safe or in danger? It's longing to know if it needs to fight, to, to flee, to freeze. There's some other things too, but those are the ones we commonly talk through. But it's always doing that, and it's doing it so fast, you don't get to think and correct it very easily. It's fast. And so, we talk about, you know, well, why, why does racism still exist? Because you talk to people, and most people would not say that anybody is different based on their pigment of their skin. But it's when you are put into a pressure situation that suddenly your brain might fire in a way that you aren't expecting. And in a tense situation, the same person that, let's say you, you met a coworker, and you get introduced to this person, great, get to know you. You meet the same person that turns a corner at night and suddenly your body is like, are you someone who's going to hurt me or not? But you weren't consciously thinking, I think someone like you is a danger. Your brain is interpreting it quickly and making these decisions and it throws all these hormones into your system. You know, if I showed you a picture of, of a big grizzly bear, you wouldn't be afraid. Your brain would be like, I can tell this is a piece of paper. But if I get a little like rubber spider and put it in a little bit of a drawer or hide it somewhere, it's getting a little bit closer to what your brain might panic about and send you into fear. And then next thing you know, you're tiptoeing around. But it's not because you want to think about being afraid or think about being biased, any of those things. But we all struggle because our brains, the part of our brain that is trying to protect us sometimes takes us in directions we don't want it to go. The next thing that happens, though, is you have a strong reaction, and a strong emotional reaction, and you lash out at someone, you're not trusting of someone, you mistreat someone, whatever it is that you've done, and the thinking part of yourself now has to reconcile. Who am I? Well, you know, if they weren't so blank. So the thinking part of ourselves doesn't want to take us down a bad road, but it will reflect and try to put us at ease when we've gone astray in ways that we didn't expect ourselves to go. And so it's how we kind of enable ourselves as, as people, as communities, as societies to start, well, you know, if they only worked harder, 
Oh, you know, if they only cleaned up a little bit more. Oh, if they only did blank. We're just trying to give ourselves some rational reasons for the ways that our brains have just taken us into some places that we're not comfortable with instead of dealing with it. And so today we're talking about the relationship between the Judeans and the Samaritans. And it's a long history, one that's been reinforced and their fears of each other keeps getting reinforced and reinforced. But it's a people that used to be one nation. And then they divided, couldn't agree. It's actually kind of a funny story almost. It begins with uh, Solomon leaves his kingdom to his son, and his son is trying to figure out how to rule. And the people are like, hey, you rule too harshly like your dad did. Like, maybe you should ease up on us. And the son goes, you know what? If you thought my dad was bad, you're going to have to wait and see because it's going to get a lot worse. And the people said, fine, we're gone. And that little divide, that little emotion of like, how dare you challenge me? I'm the king. I have the right. That little lashing out creates the schism, this divide, that neighbors turn against each other. And so their religious groups develop in different ways. Most of your Bible is taken from that southern kingdom's perspective. Uh, most, like every prophet but one is from Judah in the biblical text. But they worshiped a little bit different. Their texts are a little bit different. They get conquered at different times. So the northern kingdom of Israel gets conquered in 722 by Assyria. Judah feels pretty strong of like, hey, big brother got beaten, but we're still here. And that works for another few hundred years until Babylon comes through. But all that's in 586. And somehow it's 600 years later, basically. It's the time of Jesus. And there's still conflict. There's still this frustration with each other. So much so that a quote-unquote good Jewish person at that time would walk around Samaria instead of walking through it. Because how dare you? You wouldn't want to walk around all these unclean neighbors, these scoundrels. And so all of these, these fears about your neighbor have led to like systemic challenges and frustrations. So all of that's just the backdrop for today's text. I'm going to read Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I think a lot of people want that question. A lot of people are really preoccupied with just eternal life as the, the main thing. Here's, here's your text. If that's your, your fear, your anxiety is all wrapped up into eternal life, Teacher, what must I do to have eternal life, to inherit it? And Jesus said to him, what's written in the law? What do you read there? It's a good Socratic method. Ask the question back. And that lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this, and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And so Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell into the hands of robbers, who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. 
And he went to him and he bandaged his wounds and he poured oil and wine on them. And then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. That next day he took out two denarii, gave it to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. And when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three, do you think, was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. It's a beautiful story. There's a reason why it's one of the famous stories in the Bible. The teacher wants to know, what do I do for eternal life? And Jesus says, you're, asking, you're acting like this is an unusual question or a difficult question. You've read the law. Tell me, what do you think? And the lawyer rightfully sums it all up as love the Lord your God and your neighbor as yourself. And you might have heard me talk through this. Of people always are wondering, like, what am I supposed to do in life? What's, what should I not do? What's sin? What's right? This is the simple answer. If you love God and love neighbor, you are doing what God has designed you and created you to do. And whatever sin is, is failing to love God and your neighbor well. That's simple. And it's easy for the rational mind to say, okay, I should love God and I should love my neighbor. But why is it so hard to live that out? Go and do that thing. And so the man wants to just get a little bit further. Okay, well, who do I need to love? Because the God part, great. I can love God. But the neighbors, you know, some of them, some of them are a little bit difficult. So, so who's my neighbor, Jesus? And Jesus tells that parable, the man going down. Now, the text doesn't say where this man's going exactly. But I do think it's interesting that him going from Jerusalem to Jericho is like what you would do. You could cross the Jordan River and then go up to the east of the, and pass by Samaria and not go through it. So like Jesus would have walked this kind of road quite a bit. When they would go between Galilee and Judah, they would ignore Samaria usually, though the Gospel of John gives us some examples of him going through the area. But it's a normal route if you're trying to avoid the Samaritans. And so you're walking in good, good country, right? Oh, that's where all the, the good old folks are, the people we trust, the good neighbors. This is our place. We do things right here. And it's in that country that he doesn't find hospitality. He's beaten, robbed, left for dead. And that's enough to be frustrated by. Because somebody did not love their neighbor. They were envious. They were jealous. They were afraid. Whatever it was that, that led to that scenario. But if you're in a state where you've been wronged, you've been mistreated, you've been left and neglected, you're at least thinking, I'm on a well-traveled path. Somebody will stop for me. And I was thinking about, um, I have uh, reactions to getting shots and taking blood and all that fun stuff. I don't like it, but every time I, I give blood, it makes me faint and it just, it's not fun. But for a while, I always was like, maybe this will be the time it won't happen. I'll be okay this time. And I had one time I gave blood and it, and it was like five minutes later, I was like, I don't feel any different. This is awesome. I was so relieved. And I left the facility, and my stepdad went to go get the car in the parking lot, and I'm, I'm on the phone, and then I just collapsed on the, the porch area of the hospital. 
And there was a person on the other side of the curb, and they didn't even like ask how I was or check on me. They were just like just standing there, and you're like, how does somebody collapse in front of you and you don't even ask if you're okay? Don't check on anybody. But there's something in us that doesn't want the responsibility of checking on somebody that uh, I'm, I'm busy, uh, I don't know what's going on, I'm uncomfortable. And there's something in us that just wants to walk by, be like, I've got too much to do. And so in this story, you've got a few people on this well-traveled path who see him there, and they pass right by. Priests, Levites, people that you feel like, oh, they should know better. But no, just kind of take a further path. And maybe you've done that, you know, walking our downtown streets. You might see someone who's asking for money, and you're like, oh, I'm just kind of uncomfortable. Maybe I'll cross here instead of later. Maybe you've seen uh, people with some literature about their particular religious tradition that they're trying to hand out, and you're like, you know what, I'm going to pass by the other side. The salesperson you're avoiding. We've all had moments where we were just like, I don't want to deal with this. I'm going to avoid it. And all these travelers, instead of caring for their own neighbor, their own person, their own countrymen, they just pass him by. And in the story, the very person he's trying to avoid, probably, you don't want to go through Samaria, a Samaritan happens along the road. He's not really from here. He's a foreigner to this region. The person you least expect to see there is the person who shows up and sees somebody in trouble and, and does something about it. It says he's moved with pity, with compassion. That's that internal movement. Sometimes our, our internal systems make us afraid and sometimes they make us care. And he's moved by pa- compassion, by love, and he takes care of him. He's trying to treat his wounds. So many of us don't want to look at each other's scars, but he's helping heal those wounds. And he cares for him. And when he has, maybe he has his own responsibilities, but I'm going to leave him with someone else. Someone will care for him. I will pay for it. Don't worry about it. I will come back and I'll check on you. The very person you didn't want to see, you wanted to avoid, turned out to be the person who cared for you the best. And this story sounds beautiful. Why is it that this story is also really difficult and tough? Because the lawyer hears the story, and it doesn't seem like he's excited about this answer. It doesn't seem like he's excited about this parable that Jesus has told him. The traditional way of reading this story and talking about it is to note that when Jesus asks, who was the neighbor in this story? Who treated someone well? Who, was, who did right? That the man says, the one who showed him mercy. And the usual traditional answer is to say, he wouldn't even say the Samaritan. That he can't put those words out of his mouth. He can't say the Samaritan was the good guy of the story. And that's definitely one of the versions of the story is, for some of us, we have a hard time saying, whatever that person is that we're struggling to love, we have a hard time saying that they can be a good neighbor. For some of you, that might be a person from a different political party than yourself. Who's a good neighbor? Is it hard to admit that they might be the good neighbor? For some of you, it's 
people with certain ideological differences. It might be a family member, a friend that you've had a struggled relationship with. But we all have somebody that we would have a hard time saying, yeah, they were the good guy of the story. They did right. And so you can't even say it out loud. You kind of are resigned to the fact. And if you can't name it, how are we going to live into a better world? Like if you can't even say that your neighbor can be a good neighbor, then how are we going to love that neighbor? And for some of us, a a good prayer practice would be just as you can figure out who it is you most struggle to love, figure out how to see they have moments where they might have compassion. They have moments where the image of God might make it through the surface. Can I acknowledge that that's possible? That doesn't mean that they're the best person in the world. It doesn't mean that we agree on everything. It doesn't mean we have to uh, always you know, have the same policy ideas and all of that. But maybe God might see that they've been compassionate and say, well done. Maybe God might see moments of them loving well. And if we're unable to even open ourselves up to the fact that that person might be able to be that, We're going to struggle to love them. There's another way that you can read this text that I'm actually quite interested in. Because you're sure he doesn't say that the Samaritan was the one who acted rightly. He says, the one who showed him mercy. If you want a more optimistic take on this man, because the text doesn't tell us the state of this lawyer at the end of this text. But he says, the one who showed him mercy. Maybe you might be on a trajectory where you're learning to love people that you had a hard time loving. And the language that you've used around them, you know, falls short. I've bad-mouthed Samaritans too much. I can't say the Samaritan was the right one. I've got to think of a new way to talk about this person. Maybe there's a world in which where we're growing and learning to say, I've got to figure out a new box for this person that I've hated, this person that I've neglected, ignored, And maybe just saying the one who showed him mercy is realizing I need a new identity for this person. Maybe I should watch how they've been acting. Maybe I should reevaluate who this person is. I've been so used to calling them the no good Samaritan that maybe they're just the merciful one. And so what a beautiful thing for any of us if there's some people that you've struggled to love to get to a place where you can use a new label for them. It doesn't have to be a final, like, great, clean, and tidied up label. Just, wow, that, that person's compassionate. That person's loving. That person's kind. Like, what language can we use about people that we have bad-mouthed and belittled that starts to show that our heart might be turning to a new possibility with them? So maybe we leave the labels behind and say, okay, maybe I don't have to figure out how I can say a good whatever uh, whatever noun you want to introduce there, the good Democrat, the good Republican, the good uh, prisoner, the good uh, CEO, whatever thing that you struggle with, just put in there like, well, maybe I just, I got to get away from that term for a while. Maybe I just need to heal by just stopping that language and get into the merciful one, the kind one, the loving one. And I feel like that would be growth for many of us to leave certain terms behind. But the biggest growth pattern here 
is to make this story not a fictitious story, but turn it into real life. Because the parable is wonderful and warming, but it is nothing if we're not people who look at people with compassion and do something. The story is not meant to just keep us as the lawyer, wondering, what do I need to do for eternal life? I guess I should love somebody. Okay, can I love people that I don't easily love? Okay. But if I think about it only, and I don't actually see people and turn to them and embrace them and show compassion, figure out how do I heal your wounds? We all have our own wounds. But if we can learn how to start trying to treat each other's wounds, the world turns into a better place. And so what is it for us to look at people and say, here's an opportunity to show mercy, to show compassion, to show love, instead of just going about my everyday life, not taking the time, and just leaning into whatever possibility God has in front of you. So I think about, um, for our community, one of the places that we've focused this on is every Wednesday night at our cafe, we try not to just do a bare minimum We want to figure out, how do I serve you to the best that I can? How do I give you the most compassion, the most love that I can figure out how to provide right now? That I take the time, right? Like, I'm not too busy for you. I will stand here. I will do this well together. Because so many people are used to being just passed off, neglected, you know, ignored. Nobody looks at me in the eye. What does it take time to just say, no, compassion, mercy, love matters? But we don't have to just do it once a week. Like, what is it to walk in your everyday life and figure out who it is that makes you a little bit uncomfortable that you're like, ah, I don't know, am I supposed to do anything here? And just lean into it and say, maybe I'm in this place for a reason. You know, I don't know if the Samaritan, it doesn't show that he's grumbling that day. God, I had a plan today. I'm meeting, I'm supposed to make dinner, I'm supposed to get, you know, whatever it is that's on your trajectory, <sighs> I had other plans. But what is it to be a people that doesn't stick to your plan as much as you stick to your character, that you love, that you show compassion? And the beauty of this story is it's being told by somebody who didn't just tell these kinds of stories, but lived this kind of story. Jesus was the one who walked through a Samaritan village and a woman's like, why are you talking to me? You know we don't talk, right? You're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan. You're a man, I'm a woman. Like, people are going to think this is weird. And Jesus uses that to say, you know what? This water here, there's a greater water. There's something that actually sustains you. You're thirsty in life for something that you don't understand yet, but let me tell you about who God is. And we want to distract and say, well, but you you worship on this mountain, we worship on that mountain. Isn't that the debate? Isn't that why we're divided for so long? It doesn't matter about the mountains. What matters is the people here and the God we serve. Love God with all of your heart, mind, soul. Love your neighbor. And Jesus lived that out. And interestingly enough, people with power did not like that he loved his neighbors. 
There will be people who will shame you, be like, what are you doing? Why are you giving them the time of day? Oh, don't you know that this person that you just gave that money to is going to just go waste it? Don't you know that they're not going to be a good steward of whatever you've done? Don't you know that they're not going to care? They're not going to thank you. They're not really grateful. Because there's something in us that doesn't want to turn over to fully loving each other. And if you see somebody else loving, you start being like, well, I don't want to see myself as not loving. So let me belittle you so you'll stop loving. And that's like last week when we talked about the crab bucket. One crab can get out of the bucket, you get several crabs in there, and they start just pulling each other down. And when you try to love, other people are going to start saying, you should probably cut that out. But the beauty of our story is that our Savior loved even on a cross. And I don't know how you love that well. I want to love that well. But I think we all struggle to get to that. How you could be on a cross being mocked, shamed, in pain, struggling for breath, and say, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Like, that is just ununderstandable. Like, you just, how do you make sense of that kind of love? But if we were to actually get to that kind of spot, what a better world. And God's getting there. We're sometimes trying to delay that party. God's kingdom is coming. God's kingdom is near. And yet we hold on to our own powers. We hold on to our own ways of wanting to do things. We hold on to our own prejudices, our own fights, our own biases. Just a little longer, God. I don't want to change yet. But what is it just to get startled and just shook by having eyes open to see that there's a neighbor in front of you in need who needs the compassion today. And so that's what I long for, is that each of us would, would just live our lives with that kind of love and mercy and compassion. And if you're in here and you feel like you've been beaten and you've been mistreated and harmed and you've been robbed, know that God sees you Jesus sees you. When the world doesn't look at you, God does. There are certain people, certain situations that, that the church or the world has struggled to love as well as God has. And so I hope that if you're in that space today, you just feel God's love for you. That you feel that even if every person keeps walking by you, Jesus is there. And maybe you don't have to wait for the first person to actually show compassion to you. You can appreciate Jesus, what he's done, and start walking, looking around, so that nobody else has the experience that you had of being overlooked. And so how do we love our neighbors in this divided world? We have to be willing to see them, willing to show that compassion, willing to say, there are people that I've categorized wrongly. I've labeled them as no good, but they might be the ones who actually show mercy. And I have to be willing to be corrected that that might be the case. And ultimately, God shows us all mercy, 
even on those days where our brain didn't go in the direction we wanted it to, on your worst day, on your worst decision, God still shows his love and compassion for you. And that's good news. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we confess that we have not always loved you or our neighbors to the fullest. And Lord, we can't express enough gratitude that you don't hold that against us or shame us, guilt trip us, that you are always open-armed, that you're always there to heal us, to to heal our wounds, to, to restore us, to transform us, to heal us. Lord, let us have a sense of gratitude for your goodness and your love. Lord, help us to be able to let go of hate, to let go of the anger, the frustration at the robbers and bandits of this world. Lord, help us to trust that your justice, your peace, your kingdom will come to fruition. Lord, let us be hopeful that our relationships with with those that we struggle to love might be transformed. There might be peace where there is conflict. Lord, help us just to sit and to, to feel your presence today. Lord, let our wounds be healed. Let our hearts be on fire for, for your kingdom, for your love, your compassion, your mercy. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.